This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Figuring out how to raise happy, healthy, and successful kids can be overwhelming. Parents find themselves wading through tons of conflicting advice. There are books out there that outline the right way of doing things, and those books can leave even the most dedicated caregiver feeling discouraged and inadequate when real life just doesn't measure up. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an experienced psychiatrist and the founder of an organization called the Center for Reflective Communities, who has a completely different approach in her new book. She argues that the key to successful parenting is learning to slow down, reflect, and recognize that there is really and truly no one key to doing it right. In today's show, we're going to be talking about the latest in neuroscience research that shows, interestingly enough, that our brain's natural tendency to empathize, to analyze, and to connect with others is really all we need to be good parents. We've got all sorts of practical, easy-to-implement strategies for you that will apply to every stage of a child's development. The goal, as it is with most other topics that we talk about here at Positive Parenting, is to help you as parents build loving, lasting relationships with your kids. I'm Armin Broad. We'll start talking about how you can become a more reflective parent when our show continues right after this. Stay with us. I'm in almost every school bus in classroom. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Regina Pally, who's the author of The Reflective Parent, How to Do Less and Relate More with Your Kids. Regina, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. I'm glad to have you talking to you. Let's talk a little bit about what you mean by being a reflective parent. Um, there's certainly a lot of stuff that we do in our, our regular everyday parenting lives where we're just running around doing everything because it seems to need to be done without really thinking too much about it. And we probably could benefit from slowing down generally. But what, how, do you, how do you interpret that? Okay, so, you know, really reflective parenting fits into what most parents are already doing. It's not, some, uh, it's not something in addition to parenting. Um, being a reflective, a reflective parent is really uh, a, a toolbox for raising kids that um, are much more likely to reach their full potential. So when you're running around and doing things with your kids or doing, well, interacting with anyone, um, there's this normal, natural way that human beings are designed to um, respond to people's behavior in terms of something going on inside the person's mind. So what does that mean? So... Your child 
you're at the supermarket with your child and they're sitting in the cart and they're grabbing at, uh, you know, some candy bar on the counter, on the shelf. And you will respond to your child dependent on what's go- what you think is the reason your child is doing that. Now, if a parent thinks their child is doing it to get attention, they can respond one way. If they think the child is doing it because the child's just a little kid and, you know, they see something they like and they just have a natural impulse to reach for it, you're going to respond in a different way. It also turns out that how you respond to the child has a lot to do with what's going on inside of you. So let's say you're feeling embarrassed by what your child's doing. You'll respond one way. And if you're feeling accepting of what your child's doing, you're going to respond in a different way. And none of this means that you don't set limits. But being a reflective parenting parent is more about how you do it than specifically about what you do. So par- some parents can set limits harshly. Other parents set limits with more understanding and firmness. And so being a reflective parent is really all about parenting with the relationship in mind. It's always trying to make sense of what's going on inside your child and not just reacting to the outside of what right. they're doing. So I, I ask this question fairly often when I'm, I'm interviewing people because it's just something that comes up an awful lot. How do you find the time? I mean, I'm not talking about out of your busy schedule, but to, to actually take that moment because, you know, the reflection is something that, you know, there's, there's a big gap between running on automatic and then having that, that foresight to be reflective. Okay. How do you begin to you, in, do yes. that? How do you have the time to drive your car? <laughs> um, you're driving your car, and you know what? Most of the time you're driving fully on automatic, and you're doing a really great job at driving. You don't have to take a special beat to think about, okay, I've got to put the gas on, got to turn the wheel. You're not doing that. It's because, actually, and this is a real misunderstanding, I find, um, about reflective parenting. I want to correct it, that we are reflective um, as human beings on an automatic, outside-of-consciousness awareness level. We are doing it all the time, whether we know it or not. And, you know, most of the time we're getting it right. You know, the more you know someone, you know, that's why you can fill in the end of someone's sentence. Mm that you know really well. You know what they're going to say. You can fill in their sentence. You do it automatically. And most of the time you're right. And so when we're understanding someone else's behavior, we do it automatically. Someone, you know, your friend reaches out to give you a hug. You know, they put their arms around you. You automatically know they're doing it just to connect, to be friendly. You don't assume they're going to strangle you. And <laughs> Probably not, no. But, you know, actually, if you've had a history of trauma in your life, you might react with pushing that person away because your automatic system, you know, expects someone's behavior to be more abusive, for example. So why I'm saying this is that most of the time, 99% of the time, we're we're being reflective automatically. And the only reason we have to actually slow down and take that extra beat, that extra moment, is when we get the sense that something's a little off about how we're responding. Like, for example, let's say, I mean, you know, it happens all the time. You say something to your child that you think is really nice and kind, and your child reacts 
with anger or, you know, walking out of the room. And you're, you're flummoxed. And that's when you realize, oh, wait a second. Maybe I have to reflect. Maybe what my child was doing and how I responded to them was off. And that's when you have to take a moment, when there's conflict, misunderstanding, because our automatic responses do pretty well, like when we're driving, right? I mean, you're driving, you're listening to the radio, you're talking to your friend in the car, you're singing along with your child in the back seat, maybe you're thinking about what you're going to cook for dinner, and, and you're not paying conscious attention to your driving, except when all of a sudden something unexpected happens, somebody swerves in front of you, you automatically jump right back into conscious awareness. And this is this balance between being conscious and being unconscious. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what I really tell parents. Don't worry so much about having to consciously think about it every time. You wouldn't really do it very well. It would be really weird. It's like... Well, but you've got to get yourself into the habit of it. I mean, if you're, you know, you a, a 16, a 16 year old new driver is not going to exactly. be nearly as confident as a, as a 30 year old experienced exactly. driver. Exactly. And this is why when you're a new parent, you're conscious all the time of every little, you know, movement that your child makes and you're thinking all the time. Eventually, um, and every time your child gets to a new stage of development, you have to <laughs> start all over again in some ways. Um, you, that's right. You have to get in the habit. Now, you know, the sad story is that um, some parents um, have grown up with parents who weren't able to be reflective with them. So they're not really good at reflective parenting. Being reflective, you know, it's it's not just that it's, it's built into our brains, but it has to, um, it's, it's built in as a potential, like language. So how, well, do you, how talk, do you learn English? Talk yeah. a little bit more about the the fact that it's built into the brain. Because you talk about that it's in the book about how it's brain. you know we're we're I already guess, pre-wired yeah. for this stuff. We're pre-wired for reflection, just the same way that we're pre-wired for language. But we know the we we're pre-wired with the potential to learn a language. What specific language we speak and what accent we speak it with depends on the environmental input. It's really the same with reflective. Uh, being reflective. So every child is born with potential for being reflective. Um, I mean, unless, of course, there's some genetic problem or something that um, you know, may, maybe impairs their brain systems. But nevertheless, a child is born with that potential, but that child has to be related to in a reflective way in order for the child to internalize and learn how to be reflective. And when we're reflective, why is, it, why is it important? Reflection seems to be important for all aspects of um, self-control. So if you have a bad habit, you bite your nails, you smoke, whatever, you have to be able to be reflective to make that connection um, to control your impulse, um, to get in touch with what you're feeling, uh, why you're doing it, to stop yourself. And so being reflective you right. know, is associated, you know, with um, doing well in school because kids are more able to self-control. But if you're being reflective about biting your nails, yeah. you're probably not going to say to yourself, I wonder why I'm doing that. Yes, or you maybe are. Would you? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I guess yes, I haven't, yes. haven't bitten my nails for a long time. I don't maybe know. you haven't bitten your nails. Right. So, for example, um, you know, well, I used to bite my nails, so I, I'm, I'm an expert at this. So what am I feeling when I'm biting my nails? 
I'm feeling, usually you're feeling something, even your habits are connected to your emotions in one way or another. And so um, just before you bite your nails, usually there's some little tension or something that gets you to need that extra little stimulation. Um, so no, actually being reflective is very useful. It's also a way of um, thinking about how to get your mind off of biting nails, to think of some other action you could take instead. So being reflective is really means being um, a good, a good uh, studier of your own brain and your own mind. Uh, okay. You forget that, you know, behavior is just the outside. It's the mind that's running the show. The mind is what's determining what our behavior is. Talking with Regina Pally, who's the author of The Reflective Parent, How to Do Less and Relate More with Your Kids. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Regina. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Regina Pally, who's the author of The Reflective Parent, How to Do Less and Relate More with Your Kids. So the doing less is the physical doing, but you're actually doing more thinking. And you're talking about the, the how we're pre-wired for this type of thing, but you're, you also make distinctions within the book of a bunch of different types of wiring. I mean, we're, we're wired for reflection, we're wired for connection, and for for uh, other things. Talk about the difference and, and how how those differences show up. Yeah. So um, I'm talking to Mr. Dad, so I'll, I'll mention a story about uh, a father. One father said to me, you know, I can see that my son really enjoys being with his mom, but he never seems to enjoy being with me. And I said, well, what do you do with your son? And he said, well, you know, he talks to me, and I'm, you know, I'm always trying to teach him how to be, um, he, this is, uh, his son was like 12. I'm always trying to teach him how to be a good person and improve himself and, you know, things like that. And I said, so, you know, what, what, what's your reason for doing that? And he says, well, my father was very uninvolved, so I feel like, you know, I really need to teach my child how to be um, a man in the world and do better and succeed. I never got that from my own father. And so in talking to him, what what he began to realize was that he was turning his son off. <laughs> and um, that what actually his son needed was just a connection with him. didn't need a teacher. His child wasn't looking for a guide. Maybe he was looking for a guide in, in his childhood, but that's not what his son was looking for. And so he learned to just kind of sit and hang out with his son, just have a relationship. Not really, it was not really high-level thinking. It was just hanging out, you know, shooting the breeze. And so that's really a, a big thing that I emphasize is that, yes, you know, it's important to get your kid to have music lessons and sports and 
drive them around to all these different activities and all that. But what we've left out is sometimes, and a lot of the times, kids just need to have a connection with you. And that's really what they're looking for. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm talking about. I think a lot of parents these days, unfortunately, have this idea that um, parenting is a bit like an, being an engineer, you know. If you do this and do that and give them this and give them that, you can create sort of the perfect child. And really what we know now is, you know, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, you know. And But what you can do, parent, it's not that we have no control. It's that the control we have is going to come out, out of the relationship. Having that bond, that connection where your par- child feels, and what is it? relationship mean when I say a good relationship, a strong relationship. It just means that your child feels safe with you, feels you care about them, understand them, and support them. Basically, that's it. And when your child feels that way, you are going to increase the chances that your child will uh, reach their full potential. And that's the control we have. Right. You know, I'm, I'm curious about something here, because when I first started looking at this, at the book and reading through it, I, I thought, well, this is sort of mindfulness. And then I'm, I'm realizing as I get further Great in question. that it's it's yeah. not mindful. I mean, that no, mindfulness, you're that. you're aware of something and you just sort of let it go. But this is like you're aware of it and then we dig deeper. Exactly. You got it. Exactly. Mindfulness is really different than um, being reflective. And in fact, there are different brain centers that are activated depending on when we're mindful versus when we're reflective. Being mindful is really something literally in the present moment. Now, it's good to be mindful, but it's not enough to have a good relationship because sometimes it's not a matter of letting it go. It's a matter of holding on to it and chewing the fat, so to speak, wondering about it, being curious about it, think, trying to think about it in this way and that way. Um, so, for example, um, you can be mindful by just noticing, for example, um, when a child spilled the milk at the dinner table and... You know, you can be mindful of, oh, my child spilled the milk, I noticed that, I'm just going to let it go. But, um, you know, sometimes, and that, that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that, that's great, but sometimes something else is going on, you know, where you might, a child might need some assistance, for example. You know, if your child um, spilled the milk because they need attention, and being mindful is not going to get you there <laughs> to figure that out. You have to kind of step back and think about it from a different angle. And so I think mindfulness is a good ingredient, but it's not sufficient. And we encourage parents to have both, um, particularly under stress. What's interesting is, and probably the biggest interference with being reflective is stress, stress and conflict. You're under a lot of stress. Your refle- capacity to be reflective goes out the window, and you become much more rigid. I don't mean you personally. I mean all of us. We become much more rigid and fixed. It would be like driving a car and refusing to turn the wheel when someone swerves in our direction. Um, we get hung up on just keeping doing it the habitual way. And so when we're under stress, we're much more just immediately reactive rather than being right. um, thoughtful. Right. And so under stress, one of the best ways to counteract that sense of stress is to be mindful in the moment. Relax, be mindful in the moment. But that's just the first step. 
And actually, um, you know, I'm sure you've read about in my book that I am the founder and co-director of Center for Reflective Communities. And one of the things we do is we run reflective parenting groups. Um, and um, in our reflective parenting groups, when we're teaching these ideas, these skills to parents, we often start out with a mindful exercise to kind of bring everybody in the room and just kind of all um, sort of set our stresses and leave them, leave them outside the room so we can think um, reflectively in the, in the groups. So um, I think parents need both. Yeah. I mean, kids need both. Kids need, you know, what... <laughs> Um, parents, not only <clears throat> is there no right way to parent, but parent, kids need a whole variety of kinds of inputs. And I, I, you know, I know that you talk about this in your own uh, website, but that kids need a variety of inputs. They need someone to be nurturing. They also need somebody to be sometimes be a little tough on them. And um, actually, we... Uh, there's a woman named Angela Duckworth who does a lot of research on uh, resilience, and she talks about that sometimes parents um, can give the input of being very nurturant, but might take a coach or someone else to kind of be able to be yeah. a little tougher on it. So kids yeah. need all these different things. So, Regina, we have being reflective is how we're yeah. going to enable ourselves to do that. We only have about just a couple minutes left, so it's not completely fair to ask you to cram this all into that time, but. Uh, yeah. Because you mentioned, you know, you're, you've got a chapter in here about uh, the science of attachment, and it's mostly directed at mothers. But within that same chapter, you also have a, a heading called "Genes Are Not Destiny." So I'm I'm wondering if the the science that you're talking about of attachment, which generally seems to be kind of synonymous or looked at as being synonymous with motherhood, whether there is really any genetic component there that way, or maybe it's more of a chromosomal thing than genetics i don't know i think it's even more complicated than that right so genes are just our potential genes are not destiny and so i think you know part of the you know really literally parenting practically used to be synonymous with mothering you know and so basically all the science of attachment 90 percent of it has been studied on mothers um, right. Well, if you don't know. ask, you're not going to get much. Right. And exactly. Exactly. So we know that a child can just as well attach to a father. A father can be a child's primary care caretaker, attachment figure. Um, and who a child picks as their primary attachment figure depends on the interaction the child has with the parent. So if the father is the primary caretaker, very like more likely than not child's going to have the father be the attachment figure. We also know that gender does not determine um, what traits and characteristics you have as a person. There are many men who are as nurturant as women. Now, the one thing that seems to, again, but this is maybe a limitation on our research, there are some changes that seem to be happen in the, in the mother's brain after, um, as, as a result of being pregnant and um, that alter the mother's sensitivity to her child's behaviors. And that's the dopamine system. And we know that um, that happens. But that's not the only way it happens. Just the literal caretaking of of an infant who's dependent on you also alters your brain. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I see no problem with 
um, fathers being primary caretakers and having that attachment be with the father. So okay. I'm, uh, I'm sure the research is going to pan out just that way. All right. Regina Pally, the author of The Reflective Parent, How to Do Less and Relate More with Your Kids, and also the uh, founder and co-director of the Center for Reflective Communities. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Are you one of those people who put off your holiday shopping until way after the holidays and you're already into the new year and still haven't completely finished your shopping? Well, here are some great last-minute options, let's call them, that are sure to please. Compete Hot Wheels Edition Wearable from Nobby. In theory, this fitness tracker for kids is pretty similar to the one you may have on your own wrist with its step counter and a promise to make exercise less boring. But unlike most trackers for adults, this one actually keeps that promise by truly making exercise fun by letting kids set up distance goals, such as marathons or run across the Brooklyn Bridge, and also gives kids info on how much activity they'll need to do to burn off a bag of chips or a slice of pizza. That's an approach, by the way, that has been proven much more successful than simply listing calories and grams of fat. And it also provides all sorts of other incentives to get up and move. It's for ages 6 and up. Plain Nobby Competes are under $40 for a pair. Barbie and Hot Wheels branded Competes are under $30 for one. You can get more information at nobbytablet.com. Curio Watch from KD Interactive. If you've got an Apple Watch, a Samsung Gear, or one of the other smartwatches out there, from Sony, Pebble, Garmin, Fitbit, and so on, there's a good chance that your kids are jealous and want one, too. Unfortunately for the kids, especially little ones, smartwatches are just too expensive. Until now. The new Curio watch is designed especially for kids and is so packed with features that you might be the jealous one. The watch shoots video and takes still pics, has a built-in accelerometer and some really fun games, it messages with other Android devices and has an ice in, the, in case of emergency function. It comes in a variety of colors and, of course, even tells time. It's for ages 6 and up. It costs under 60 bucks. CurioWorld.com is where you can find out more. The SE Tablet from Nobby. Most parents these days are justifiably concerned about kids spending too much time on screens. We also understand that there's a difference between good screens and bad ones. The new Nabi SE tablet is a good one. Of course, it comes preloaded with games and an entire education system, but there are a few features that set Nabi apart from other kids' tablets. You can configure Nabi to reward your kids for doing chores and making other good choices, and it has customizable and completely safe social networks for messaging, sharing pics, and more. No one can connect with your kids unless they have a unique friend code that you give them. It's for ages 4 to 6, cost under 80 bucks. More information at nabitablet.com. Neon Street Rollers from Yvolution. Remember Heelys, those cool-looking shoes with wheels in the heels? How about good old-fashioned rollerblades or ice skates, which are making something of a comeback these days? Well, now you can get that delightful rolling experience without having to change your shoes. Neon street rollers fit over almost any footwear, 
are fully and easily adjustable, snug, and more stable than Healy's, since the wheels are positioned on the outside of each foot instead of centered under the heel. The LEDs in the wheels flash when you're moving, without batteries, by the way, which makes rollers even cooler. They're for ages 6 and up, cost under 30 bucks at Amazon and other retailers. Super Wubble from NSI. If you like Wubble, and who doesn't, you'll love Super Wubble, which is made of Expandium, a stronger, stretchier, and bouncier material that makes this giant ball incredibly fun. Just break out the battery-operated pump, batteries are not included, unfortunately, and you're ready to go within minutes. All you need is a ton of energy and some wide open spaces. No, we don't recommend this for indoor use. It also comes with a patch kit, just in case you succeed in puncturing the expandium. It's for all ages, under $30. You can get it at Wubble.com. You can also get, at our website, parentsatplay.com, a lot more information and reviews of toys and games that are great to do with your kids. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. But hang on, don't go yet, because there's a lot more positive parenting, some really great stuff coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Oh, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. As an alternative to recycling? Yeah, an alternative. So we, like, don't have to do it. Recycling. There are lots of planets. Finding one is just a matter of time. Many people say that recycling is pretty simple and convenient. A matter of keeping select items out of the trash. A lot simpler than finding a new planet, Tommy. Come on, there's a bunch of planets out there. Would you recycle on this new planet, Tommy? Or just use it up and throw it away, too? I, I really don't have a clue. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy. Unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm Armin Brott. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. We're glad you stayed with us. Genevieve Shaw Brown, an ABC News reporter and mother of three, would rise before the sun came up to prepare organic meals for her children while she skipped breakfast and scarfed down greasy macaroni and cheese in between meetings at work. She felt sluggish and exhausted until she decided to put herself on the baby diet and started eating the same foods her kids ate, just in adult-sized portions. The results were transformative. Genevieve felt better, lost weight, and prepared a segment on her new diet for Good Morning America that went viral. But diet wasn't the only area of Genevieve's life where her children's need came before her own, often with disastrous results. She started to wonder, what if the same principles that had helped her to revamp her diet could also be applied to exercise, sleep, relationships, and more? What would happen if a mom were to treat herself the way she instinctively treats her children? With that, 
Genevieve's year-long experiment into self-respectful parenting began. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Genevieve Shaw-Brown. She's going to tell us her stories, her, her own experiences. She's got expert advice and innovative hacks that can address the common issues that mothers face while also teaching women how to treat themselves with the same care and love they provide their children and their families every day without a second thought. Stay with us. This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat, and apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable, but how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt. My guest for this part of today's show is Genevieve Shaw-Brown, who is the author of The Happiest Mommy You Know, Why Putting Your Kids First is the Last Thing You Should Do. Uh, Genevieve, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about your, I guess, accidental discovery of you know, that all the the selfless things you were doing for your kids really were something that you probably ought to be doing for yourself, which when you think about it, it thinks, you know, it makes perfectly good sense. Um, I mean, I think it makes perfectly good sense, but I think it doesn't occur to a lot of people. No, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't. Yeah, right? I mean, people, parents are so used to, of course, they want to put their kids first. They want to give them everything. They want to, you know, feed them nutritious meals and make sure that they get exercise and that they're sleeping okay. Um, but in the process, oftentimes we lose sight of, you know, doing those very basic things for ourselves, and, and in the end, you know, making sure that you're taking care of yourself, I think, you know, makes you uh, hopefully a happier parent, a more well-rounded parent, and, and possibly even a, a better parent. Probably, yeah. I mean, you know, I think we, we instinctively think, well, I would never subject my kids to bad behavior or bad food or bad experiences, and then, but we don't think about when we then go out and do it ourselves. Right, and so in one and one very clear example to me um, on that uh, on that along those lines is the idea of sleeping. So I am completely obsessed with my kids getting enough sleep. Right, so they have a very specific bedtime. They have a specific bedtime routine. Uh, I even went as far as to create uh, what I call the spa room. Uh, in their bedroom, so making it, you know, uh, soft music and an electric candle to provide ambiance. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm going to bed with a giant TV that you can practically see from outer space, uh, iPads, iPhones, no real bedtime, just sort of whenever I pass out kind of thing. And, I mean, if you, I mean, would you ever, I mean, what kind of parent would ever allow their children to do that? They wouldn't, right? So why is it okay for you? It's not. And one of the easiest changes I made was uh, along the issue of sleep. And I started setting for myself the way I did for the kids, a bedtime, uh, no devices in the bedroom. And 
literally overnight things changed. Like I woke up the next morning after the very first night of doing that was like, wow, I feel great. I feel more patient. I feel happy. And wow. it was such a simple thing that had never even occurred to me before. Now you you started with this when your kids were very very young and you were you were producing all sorts of delicious organic meals. How old are they now? So I have three children now. When I started the book, I had two, um, but I have three now. And um, they are Addie, who is five years old. I have Will, who is three years old, and Luke, who is almost one year old. So it's um, it's it's quite a busy time, you know. And every parent understands that. that they, 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 they need you so much at this time uh, in their lives. But it, it goes by really fast. I mean, it seems like just yesterday my daughter was born. And sure. I wanted to enjoy this time with them. I didn't want to wish it away. You know, I didn't want to just be getting from nap time to bedtime, from nap time to bedtime. I wanted to really enjoy each day. And so this experiment for me, the happiest mommy project, as I refer to it, um, you know, has really helped me in many ways do that. You know, it's interesting. When your kids are teenagers, you'll find it less easy to have these double standards. Because as you were saying these things, I'm thinking, boy, I've had my my youngest one, who's 13, say to me, what are you telling me to go to bed for? You're just sitting in there, you know, watching whatever it is, this show that I'm com- that I'm completely obsessed with binge watching, you know. It's uh, you know, how can you do that? Or or she, you know, when I'm telling her to do her homework, this is one that comes up all the time, reminding her to do her homework and not wait until the very last second to do something. And she says, well, when you're working on a book, you wait until the very last minute. Well, you know, <laughs> golly. You get crafty, those, those kids, don't they? Well, yeah, but there, there's something to that. So I guess what we have to develop then as adults is, is an ability to, to have our some li- little bit of double standard radar directed at ourselves. Uh, in, I in agree. A way. I agree. I mean, you know, what treating yourself as well as you treat your kids, which is the basic premise of the book, it doesn't take away anything from your kids. And, you know, I think that the word selfishness, especially when it comes to parenting, uh, can be, you know, it's, it's really taboo. But this is selfishness with a goal, you know, this and the goal of being a happier parent and therefore hopefully, hopefully, you know, and, and, you know, I won't know for a very long time, but hopefully then producing uh, children who are happy too. Because I do believe that a parent is a child's greatest teacher, and my ultimate goal is for my children to be happy in whatever they choose to do in life. So I don't know how they could know what that is unless I model it for them. So that's basically what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about the subtitle. And not, mm-hmm. I don't, not, not to be nitpicky about the thing, but in a way, it seems like the subtitle being why putting your kids first is the last thing you should do. It seems like in many ways that's it's not it's not really the last thing that we might be. We might come to the conclusion that we need to take better care of ourselves by putting somebody else first. That It's that that altruistic or more selfness act that ends up getting us to say, wait, hold on a second. This is this is just wrong. Right. Well, I, I think that when parents continually put their children first at the expense of themselves, then okay. that is the last thing they should do. Because if you can't take care of yourself, I don't think you can be in any position to take care of somebody else well. So when I say putting your kids first is the last thing you should do, I mean that if you're doing it at the expense of your, of your own sanity, health, life, you know, whatever it may be. You know, it's it's a uh, 
what I call the flight attendant school of parenting when I'm teaching my classes for, for expectant fathers and explaining to them that why you need to put your crying baby down and get out of the room rather than in, endure the kinds of thoughts that you're going to have about wanting to throw a kid out the window. Because, uh-huh. because what the flight attendants say, you, know, you, you put your mask on first and then you help the people with you, which I don't think I ever really completely understood until having kids. That That's exactly what you said, that if you can't take care of yourself, you can't breathe, you're not going to be able to do much for anybody else. Exactly. And I think that, you know, parenting in many ways, um, and I think it maybe has to do with social media or some a different differentiation in parenting styles that's evolved over time. But, you know, parenting is, is like, it's very competitive in a way. And, and, and some of that competition is like, who can, you know, who can sacrifice more, you know, who's, and, and somehow that makes you a better parent. The more you give up of your own life, the better parent you are. And I'm not sure that I buy that. And in fact, if, you know, I don't hear you book, we'll, we'll realize actually very quickly that I don't buy that. I don't buy it at all. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I think that my children, my husband and I, I think we're all equal members of this family. We're all people, we all have rights and feelings and dreams and wishes, and, and I'm there to to take care of my children and foster this, but I, that doesn't mean that I don't I don't matter anymore. I think I matter, and I think my husband matters, and I think the, the kids matter. All we we're all equals. All right. So there's a chapter in here that I'm thinking, boy, this would never appear in a in a book, a similar book written by a dad. Lose the leggings. Don't let your style take a backseat <laughs> to your child's wardrobe. Like I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, that. <laughs> To, am I am I wrong about that? Is that more? Is that more no, wrong you're thing? right. You're right. That is that's pretty mom specific. That's okay, <laughs> I mean it's you know I, I should I should do laundry and I I should shave if it's getting a little obnoxious, but it just seems I, it just never would have occurred to me. I was just chuckling as I'm reading that whole that whole chapter, thinking, wow, I just you know I'm, yeah I'm happy to go take the kids out and buy them whatever they need, but hmm, I I'm not gonna <laughs> I don't know I just. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I found is that, you know, I'm I'm walking on the playground here, in my neighborhood where you know we spend a lot of time in the playgrounds in our apartment, and you see these these children and they're, you know, they walk around looking like they just stepped out of a magazine, and their mothers are running after them with snot on their shoulder, and you know leggings they've been wearing for three days, and you know that that like harried like look in their eyes, and that 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 was me too. I mean, you know that. And it's very, it's, it's, there's not really something wrong with it. It's just that it, it, it's a very, when you see it, it's very clear that something is out of balance. I think that, that, that when your children, when you're putting so much focus on the, you know, their appearance, uh, again, at the expense of your own, it's not so much that the appearance itself matters. It's what it represents. It's that your life has gotten out of whack somehow. Talking to Genevieve Shaw Brown, who's the author of The Happiest Mommy You Know, Why Putting Your Kids First is the Last Thing You Should Do. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Genevieve. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And 
This is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brott, talking with Genevieve Shaw-Brown, the author of The Happiest Mommy You Know, Why Putting Your Kids First is the Last Thing You Should Do. And we're just talking about a, a chapter that probably wouldn't have appeared in a, in a book by, by a dad. And then the very next chapter, no, not the very next chapter, it's a couple chapters down, uh, which is a, one that I think should be in every book that would be written by a dad. Uh, and I actually have included it in a number of, of my books as well. Take Yourself to the Doctor. That yeah. that is something I think that gets so left out, and probably especially by dads who tend to not take terribly good, not dads necessarily, but men generally, tend not to take terribly good care of ourselves, especially when you you can sort of justify it by saying, well, I've got all this, I have to work, and I've got to do this stuff and take care of the kids, and they need to go to the doctor. and But you need to set an example, and you need to be healthy, mom yes, or dad. absolutely, and- and that's where I found myself. You know, I, I think, I, I can't remember the exact tally now, but there was, you know, it was something like, you know, kids' doctor's appointments, 30, and, you know, in the course of a year, and mom's doctor's appointment, zero. Now, you know, luckily, I'm in very good health, thank goodness, um, but there are, have been issues that I've just ignored. One of them that I talk about in the book is this sort of chronic back problem that I've had um, since my oldest was born. And just completely, you know, I've been neglecting, had been neglecting to get it checked out for the longest time. And, you know, nothing serious at all. But it's just a, it's just a reminder that, again, when I really sat back and looked at what was going on in my life, realizing that I had been suffering with this pain for so long and not doing anything about it, and yet running to the doctor at every sign of a sniffle for the kids, it's, it's that moment again when you realize things are just out of whack you have to take care of yourself too and there's you don't take something away from your children by going to the doctor in fact you know there when you could argue that you're giving them something you're setting a good example as you mentioned um but also being proactive about any health issues that could possibly arise that would you know take away from your ability to parent them and so how do you how do you do that though? I mean because you do have the schedule, you do have the full-time job. You've got all these the, the people who are dependent on you and it is so easy to let your own needs you know, and we're not even talking about things like the organic breakfast, but just your own larger needs just get ignored or put off or I'll do it next week or whatever. I'll you know, combine it with a trip downtown or whatever it is. Right. It was all excuses for me and that's basically all it was. Um, I mean, if I could find the time for 30 doctor's appointments for my children, certainly I could find the time for one for me. And, you know, and to every time I just put it off, it was just because just just lame excuses, just, you know, no, no real reason, just always saying I don't have enough time, I don't have enough time. But when you 
when I looked at what was actually going on in my life, you know, I, I realized that I had time for a lot of other things. Um, you know, so I had to figure that out too. And it just became a priority. And once it became a priority, that was, that was it. And it, and I hope, you know, that my, I would never want my children to hesitate to go to the doctor if they didn't feel well, if they were having chronic pain as I was. Um, so, you know, there's no way I can get away with now, now having that realization, I can't get away with doing it myself. No, you can't. And speaking of kind of doing things for yourself, what about this business of taking vacations without them? <laughs> oh, yes. I know. I know. You know, it's funny. That's like parents fall into two pretty definite camps about vacationing without their kids, right? Some people are like, I would never go away without my kids. And some people are like, I would definitely go away without my kids. And I don't know where you fall, um, but I'm of the, you know, if I have the, the, the time, the opportunity, and a person's willing to watch all three of them, I'm most certainly going to go ahead huh. and take that vacation. Well, I feel kind of <laughs> guilty if I ever do. I mean, know, even, even I, if it's an extended business trip and I take an extra day or something to, to just hang. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, you know, I, I, I think that I gave up on that because I realized that when I'm home with them, which is, you know, most of the time, I don't go away frequently, um, but when we are home, we spend so much wonderful time together. We have a lot of fun. We do a lot of interesting things together. So you know, it's okay, and, and there are other people in their lives that love them very much, that take care of them while I did go away. So my, my parents, for example, their aunts and uncles, um, and they get something by spending time with them, too, without me. So, you know, I mean, you can call it justification. Maybe it is, but I know that when I do get away from them for a couple of days, I come back, I feel refreshed. I'm very, very excited to be back to see them and get back into the daily routine. All right, so there's a couple more here that I want to talk about. The exercise one, I think, is, is such an ex- such a big one. I mean, and you should be setting an example. It's another one of these things. They're taking their cues from us, and we I've probably almost every parent out there knows that kids are supposed to be getting 60 minutes a day of exercise, and they rarely do. How do you manage to get that in there, and do you try to incorporate your own exercise with theirs, or are they operating in separate universes? For the time being, they're operating in separate universes. They're, um, you know, I do do the occasional put the baby in the jogging stroller and go for a run. But I've also decided that running is also that sort of time that I take for myself. Um, and often, uh, I, I actually just ran the New York City Marathon in November, so I started out, you know, not exercising at all, and then built up to running a marathon. So. I did most of my training early in the mornings before they were even awake. Um, on the occasions that I had to take very long runs with my wonderful husband, stepped up and, and made sure that they were absolutely fine without me for, you know, four hours at a time. And, again, I modeled that good behavior in such a way that my oldest daughter, Addie, now asked me to go on runs, you know, because she sees she had seen me all these months getting up and lacing up my sneakers and going out coming back hopefully she noticed that I was in a great mood when I came back I don't know if that part that part registered quite yet but she decided that she wanted to start running too so so once in a while she'll put on her sneakers I'll put on my sneakers 
we go for a short little run together, and she likes to hold hands while we run, so we look a little bit funny running down the street holding hands in our <laughs> matching jogging clothes. But, you know, it's a lot of fun, and, and I hope that it's something that will become, maybe not running necessarily, but physical fitness will become mm-hmm. an important part of her life because it took me a very long time to get to that place where I was comfortable to, to say, you know what, this is something that I'm going to do for myself, certainly, but also to give me some time to think. You know, when you're around kids all sure. day, it, it, you don't even get a, a minute to clear your head. Um, so that was part of it as well. Well, how do you go about, though, encouraging that? If, you don't, if you're not lucky enough to have a kid who is interested in doing what you do, at least in that regard, mm-hmm. how do you mm-hmm. encourage them to do something, whether it's with you or not? Well, for me, with the, all, all our kids, I have been just signed up for, you know, little gymnastics classes or gym classes and swim lessons and things like that. So we've always, since all of their births, have encouraged some level of physical activity uh, all, at all times. So I hope that has helped. Um, well, I'll give you a current example right now. So my, my daughter wants to sign up for some after-school kids clubs next semester. And, you know, she might have, might, she would really prefer probably – her thing is, you know, she's gonna. She looks like to sit around and draw all day. That's what she likes to do. But we told her, you know, you, you just have to take. You, if you're gonna take a, you know, do a little art class, and you also have to take something that's more active. You have to do something like tennis or swimming or, or, or you know, running or whatever. And you know, then that's kind of how, at this point, they're young enough that we're able to still do that to, to direct their lives in that way. So, what's next for you? Oh, what's next for me? Gosh, hopefully being able to keep living, uh, you know, this motto of treating myself as well as I treat the kids because it was really a kind of a life-changing experience. Uh, once my third was born, um, you know, things kind of went back into a tailspin. <laughs> and, you know, we weren't sleeping and we were eating badly. Uh, and then we got it all back on track. And so right now we're in a very good place. And if I can keep it here, uh, I would be thrilled. But for me, my main goal is to enjoy this time with my kids because soon enough they're going to have their own interests and their own lives and they're, you know, not going to necessarily look to me to be the center of their universe. So I'm hoping that while it lasts, we can all enjoy it and enjoy each other. I've been talking with Genevieve Shaw-Brown, who's the author of The Happiest Mommy You Know, Why Putting Your Kids First is the Last Thing You Should Do. And there's another subtitle, Ditch the Playdates and Other Surprising Secrets for Saner Parenting. Genevieve, thanks so much for joining us. It was really nice to have you on. Thank you for asking me to talk. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.